Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. How are you this fine week? I'm good. We just had an election. We're having a pretty hopeless looking coup right now, Mm. Um, but a coup nonetheless. I wish I could get a massage, but I can't. How are you doing? Yeah, similar take on what's going on. You know, like a lot of people in this country, I don't know what's going on. And so I'm just working on my house, working on stuff and sanding things and painting things and reading. What are you sanding? We have dogs and a lot of people who've been in this house have dogs. And after eight years of dogs, all the floors need to look uh, newer. (laughs) As if the dogs have never been there at all. Exactly. And and we can start afresh uh, for more entropy after. <laughs> and invite more dogs in to make their mark. Precisely. I decided to just start doing Christmas at the start of November. So like I ordered a Christmas tree yesterday. I'm getting a pink artificial Christmas tree. It's the pretty and pink model. It's beautiful. I saw it and I love it. I'm so happy about it. Yeah, I'm very excited <laughs> to set it up. And then I've decided that my because I've never thrown Christmas before. I always have mm. traveled home to my parents. And now ironically, I'm in Portland where I'm from, and yet I'm not going to be able to see them probably very much. It is liberating though, because I'm like, I am the Christmas thrower now. I'm doing it. And so I've decided that Christmas starts on November 1st, and I've been going with that, and I've been really liking it. Yeah, so home improvement all the way. I love that so much. I think that that's the way to go. As Mark Marin said in the introduction to his show today, a lot of people are confused about what they're doing for the holidays, but um, just make sure you're not looking a gift horse in the mouth. Excuse me. <laughs> make, sure, make sure you're not looking a gift horse in the mouth. Like, not seeing your family for Christmas could be a great thing. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And this is like probably, hopefully... Who knows? So far, the only year of most of our lives where we have a genuine public health emergency (laughs) reason to not see our families, which I think is amazing. Like, Like, let's just seize that possibility for what it is for so many of us. Yes, if it's if it's needed, please take the reprieve and don't feel bad about it. Um, we should we should start by saying what uh, the show Wire Dads is about. Oh yeah, uh, this show is about dads and dad movies and watching movies that have dads in them, and talking about what dads are and why are they a little bit struggling or a lot bit struggling a lot of the time. <laughs> yes, that is the that is the case. And we have a Patreon, which you can support if you want to and you're able and uh, not support if not. That's totally fine either way, though. Over on Patreon, there are bonus episodes and we do have a, uh, a special edition shirt that's only available for this week. Only a week. You start listening right now. It's only available for a week and you can find that on links on social media. It is a special post-election week shirt. Yes, it has two little queeribs, as uh, uh, the person who illustrated the shirt called them to me once a long time ago, uh, little queer cherubs. They're beautiful. Uh, uh, little little beautiful cherubs holding a banner that says, Why Are Dads? I love this shirt a lot, and I hope 
people love it too. I'm going to get it in orange because I need bright colors. Oh, I like the orange. Yeah, I was happy you did the orange. That's a bold choice. It looks like a camp shirt. I love it. We talked about what movie and who did we have uh, with us? We talked about the Royal Tenenbaums and we had our friend Rachel Verona Cody on the show with us to talk about it. Why the Royal Tenenbaums and why Rachel Verona Cody? So the Royal Tenenbaums was her suggestion and I decided to invite her on the show really just because I wanted to do a podcast episode and have a discussion with her and because I did uh, an event with her for the release of her book in February of this year. And it was the first time we'd met after knowing each other professionally. And so here we are. Yeah, if you want an excuse to reach out to people and just talk to them and catch up uh, in the middle of a shutdown, a podcast is a good way to do it. It really is. <laughs> I, I Seriously, I advocate for that. And also, if you need a structured way to interact with friends routinely throughout the week like collaborating on some kind of a project with them like if that's something that you share that you like to do like I just I think that working on projects with people has really kept me going this year like that and horror movies and those yeah those two things (laughs) I agree I think like even if your project like people have talked to me uh, a number of times at this point to say, you know, I want to do a podcast and they have all these questions about, about what, where, why, et cetera. And, and my take is, you know, do it with another person and be your only audience for each other. And ideally if other people like that, that's great, but really just make it an excuse for you to convene with this other person. Yeah. And if you're happy with the work you're doing together and if you can find teamwork through that and figure out how to work better with somebody and to answer difficult questions and do stuff that you're excited about than like other people enjoying it is a bonus, which is great. You know, you should say actually quickly what this movie is about, just in case someone hasn't seen it. It, The Royal Tenenbaums is about Royal Tenenbaum, who's played by Gene Hackman. Uh, This is a Wes Anderson movie, came out back in 2001, uh, has a pretty amazing cast of characters and cast of actors. It is about this man who is old and has run out of money and is a bit of a disgrace kind of across the board in his career and in his family life. And through this con where he's trying to uh, get a place to live (laughs) with his kids and his uh, estranged wife, he's given an opportunity to try to figure out how to be a better person. And we see how that goes for him and the family. And I think this is an appropriate choice because I was watching Saturday Night Live uh, last Saturday night at the end of the day when they called the race for Biden. And I was like, what's Alec Baldwin going to do now? (laughs) (laughs) I hope he narrates more movies. (laughs) There you go. That's a great that's a great job for him now that he doesn't have to do Trump so much anymore. I hear they're they're making a new Texas Chainsaw, and maybe he can uh, maybe he can do the John Lorquette thing at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> I think that's a great idea, Alec. Do it, <laughs> Alec. We're talking to you. I hear you're dying. So they tell me. Ooh, how long are you gonna last? Not long. I've got six weeks to set things right with you, and I aim to do it. Will you give me a chance? But I did find it odd when you said you were in love with her. She's married, you know. Yeah. And she's your sister. 
adopted. Let me ask you something. Why would a review make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Hold it right there. What are you doing? You're on my team. <laughs> there are no teams. You think you could start forgiving me? Why should I? Because you're hurting me. So today we have my friend Rachel Verona Cody on. I was just remembering that, Rachel, you are a very important part of one of the last great days I had before pandemic times started, which are like, you know, these treasures that I think have gotten more and more buffed and glowy over time, but also were super special just when they happened. And in this case, it's that your book, Too Much, was out and you had come to Philadelphia and we were doing an event together. And I was coming back from a trip to North Carolina and I was supposed to get back the previous day, but then I got waylaid by a couple different things and ended up coming back the day of the event. And so I remember just cutting it so close, but getting there on time. And I had budgeted out how many minutes I had so that I could take a detour to buy you flowers at this Trader Joe's in Delaware. And like, I made it. <laughs> and then we got to actually meet for the first time that we've known each other online for many years, I think probably starting with the hairpin, like 10 years ago. And then we did this wonderful reading and in conversation, and then had dinner, which was a thing people used to do. It just felt really special to me to get to help welcome your book into the world. And so yeah, this is my friend, Rachel Verona Cody, author of Too Much. And we should talk about that book a little bit too. I think it relates to some of the themes of this movie that is about a character who taught a lot of adolescent girls in the early 2000s that it is very romantic to lock yourself in the bathroom and not tell your family that you smoke for 20 years and then fall in love with your brother. <laughs> As if we all needed another way to hear that. <laughs> Rachel, why is this a movie that hits you so hard? I'm not sure. I'm I'm not sure if it's um, if it hits me for any reason that that's especially unique. But it it did seem imperative to talk about Royal Tenenbaum on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, you know, in some ways it was almost an afterthought because I. It's a movie that I love and that I find extremely aesthetically pleasurable, but I always knew I could never be a Margot. This sort of romanticized notion, even though I don't, I don't think that Wes Anderson means to romanticize Margot, but I think that she is. You don't cast Gwyneth Paltrow as anyone unless you want to romanticize whatever <laughs> it is they're doing. <laughs> Yeah, and there there is this sense that she's supposed to sort of look like a little girl dressed in a fur coat, but the fur coat fits her awfully well. And <laughs> you see what's what's being done, but it's only sort of halfway being achieved. She still looks very chic. I think that in two thousand one, I would have I would have been in in high school, and it wasn't until years later when I think I was growing much more interested in more intimate networks. And of course, the, the Tenenbaum family is a really fascinating sort of study in, in terms of the way that they love each other and also drive each other to 
distraction, resent each other. And I've certainly in the last few years become very interested in parental relationships because I, I lost my mom almost three years ago. And I think that sort of loss, it sort of necessarily creates a sort of focus. And so even though Ethelene is the much more present parent, we're more focused on Royal in the way that Royal had been absent. You're still thinking about that sort of power play. As a result of watching this movie through the quote, like dad lens, this is the first time in maybe well over 20 times of seeing this movie in my life that I realized it is the most dad movie because the title of it is the Royal Tenenbaum. This is the first time I noticed that too. I put that together like 45 minutes ago. I was like, uh, oh, that's his name. They all belong uh. to him. <laughs> <laughs> So embarrassing. I think we're inclined to see it as an adjective because uh, there is something very austere about them and very self-serious. And like, we must exist. What if we stopped being prodigies? Like, what if the royals didn't have heirs? It's like, well, nothing would be different. So also it's, you know, this reminds me a lot of the Glass family in J.D. Salinger, which again is is a given name that could also just be an adjective. When you first saw this movie, what stood out to you, Rachel? And how do you view it differently now? I think that now I'm much more attuned to, to its tenderness and to the moments of empathy. When I watched it a few days ago to, to prepare for this conversation, I found myself choking up, which wouldn't be strange because I choke up when I see a feral cat. I love the way that the characters express empathy for each other. Hmm. It's always in a particular way. Somebody will make a a sort of self-conscious acknowledgement and then the character they're talking to will say, I know. And of course, you know, because it's the world of the Tenenbaums, it's super awkward and and again, maybe sort of egotistical in its way because it's, you know, it's an I statement. But I think I'm much more aware of the way that these characters are trying to love each other and inevitably getting in their own way and, and per Anderson aesthetic boxing themselves. The first few times I watched the Royal Tenenbaums, I think I had a much harder time getting to to the the intimacy and and to the fleshy stuff because i think the the aesthetic f- felt alienating to me rather than rather than meaningful now i like anything that looks like a dollhouse and so i'm i'm inclined to uh, sort of appreciate anderson's sort of world of miniatures i also really appreciate the way that the aesthetic speaks to the way that we're all trying desperately to control our own worlds and building little bowers for ourselves or attempting to desperately control our environments as everything seems to be to be going mad and at the same time sort of isolating ourselves. Who knows why maybe I'm just thinking about I'm thinking about this right now at this particular moment in history, trying to control one's immediate environment and feeling alienated. No, we're all Wes Anderson now. Yeah. And it's interesting because I first saw this when it came out and I would have been 13. I remember seeing it in theaters and I remember immediately loving it because I loved the sort of arch, brilliant J.D. Salinger child aesthetic 
and I insufferably identified with that and also loved the aesthetic of this movie and have always loved movies that are very strong in art direction, even if they're potentially weak in other elements, and specifically love movies that are very strong on the art direction of characters' homes or offices or the settings in which characters spend their daily lives. Like if you give, I mean, I, I know I'm not alone in this. If you give me a, a really appealing house, I'll watch that movie several times. And I've always used movies as a way to sort of access a world to spend time in. And so I love that this is a movie clearly, you know, by someone who finds a lot of expression in creating settings and who has chosen to tell a story in a way that I think really showcases his strengths about a bunch of characters who all individually are communicating themselves through their settings that they build for themselves. This is the first time I've spent a significant portion of time looking beyond Royal being the dad. Royal means a lot to me as a dad because, Sarah, I feel like we're hitting movie after movie in which a dad was born around the early 1930s Mm. and is like a salt. Yeah, I wonder why. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Like, none of this is conscious, but it's like, oh, it's a lot of movies about old, gruff, salty, dying guys. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, There's so much about the royal character I see my father in in a big way i mean down to when when he's talking to to henry henry is the um is uh danny glover's character's name right henry sherman right yes when he's talking when he's talking to henry he essentially says something along the lines of like he doesn't want henry to hate him and he says i don't hate you i just think you're a real son of a bitch or i don't think you're an asshole i think you're a son of a bitch yes and royal (laughs) takes that as like a relieving uh compliment and it is exactly the sort of thing that my father would have done and so i very much see that I very much see my experience with my father right down to like just not being able to be affectionate on anyone else's terms but his own but seeing Chaz be a dad and be a dad who is traumatized by his wife's death uh, Chaz in the movies played by by Ben Stiller and then seeing Henry be a dad one of the things Rachel that you just said in which the characters just kind of acknowledge each other the way that they they connect with each other is by this form of acknowledgement and when we see jazz kind of joining everyone getting ready for the wedding he joins henry and he says something along the lines of that he's a widower and we know that henry's a widower too and henry looks at him and says i know you are Mm. and just that that acknowledgement is so significant it's so significant. It's how these people connect. I think the quirkiness and the silliness is what appealed to me for the first 80% of my time with this movie in my life. And it's only recently that like the earnestness of its love has really sort of struck me in a big way. Oh, yeah. The wedding day that wasn't, it's really a big day for Chaz emotionally because you get acknowledgement from Henry. And then after the crash, when Royal has procured the Dalmatian, brings it to to Chaz and says, you know, I got I got you a new dog. And they're and they're I forget exactly how the exchange goes, but I, I think Royal apologizes again and probably the most sincere iteration of the apology. And then Chaz says to him, I've had a really rough year. At which point Royal this time says, I know you have Chazzy. And it's and so he gets Chaz gets two dads. 
in one day. <laughs> <laughs> the day Chaz got two dads. Oh my god. I mean, outside of the obvious reasons, like this movie's so beautifully constructed, it's it's the first big Wes Anderson movie. Like it's the first movie that like people went out to see re- regardless of their interest in Wes Anderson. And this dad royal gets away with a lot more than any of us would let our dads get away with before writing him off forever. Um uh it, it, and he's essentially like on this comeback tour that is put together because he needs a place to stay. So it starts from a place of manipulation. If we ever read an article about this guy, like the internet would cancel him immediately. Like everything about Royal is terrible. I'm curious about like why we all love this movie. Many people love this movie. And is it like a fan? Is it fantasy and wish fulfillment? Like why do so many people love the themes that are in this movie? I think, first of all, it must be addressed that these are a bunch of characters who are just completely unmoored from the real world. Or, like, they're moored to it. They're like a little satellite floating around outside of it. But they're definitely not in it. No one's worried about money, aside from Royal. Characters are dealing with psychological issues, but it's like they're only dealing with their own personal, familial childhood emotional trauma which is significant and like has left them all in a in a very damaged place but also it really appears to be all they're dealing with and i think that maybe that makes dealing with dad issues more accessible and also this is just a really it's a beautifully made movie it's really pleasurable to consume like it's also very funny to think that there was a time you know, in 2001, when I saw for the first time the thing of like, slow the frame rate down a little bit and play Nico over it. And it's like, no one had seen that before. It's really hard themes packed into a Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting because it's like we watch a squid in the whale and squid in the whale has. Which is it's a nice comparison to this because that movie is merciless. Well, and Anderson produced it because those two were friends and they went on to co-write Steve Zuzu. But also about rich people in New York City. Right. I mean, and it's interesting because like this and the squid in the whale are the same movie, but the squid in the whale is a horror and this is a fantasy. Yeah. Oh, it's like E.T. and Poltergeist. That's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel, what do you think? As Sarah pointed out, these are characters who have the money and the time to just be really baffled and to really dwell in their in their damage. And and I think when we see that manifested, I mean, we're all fucking damaged and and all of us as adults, we have those moments of in which we're we're sort of like, wait, how did I get here? Wasn't I just eight years old, like five minutes ago? Like, how how am I an adult? This is not my beautiful wife. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Very much a, a once in a lifetime sort of moment. And yet you you have that moment of bafflement of like, oh, my God, I'm an adult having to live my life and be responsible and, and sort of and choke back whatever it is that I struggle with, I got to keep going. But the Tenenbaums don't really have to do that. They can just sit there. Put up a tent in the hallway and just lie there. Yes, they can stay in the tent (laughs) and play their records. And when we watch the movie for, what, the 90 minutes 
that it takes, we can crawl into that tent with them and, and just sort of marinate in the confusion of what it means to, to grow up. Well, yeah, I mean, and Sarah's primary, and I, I mean, I don't think that this is her stated goal, but as we all know, Sarah's primary goal is uh, to ask us collectively to have empathy for people we would normally tell to mm-hmm. go fuck themselves. And the Tenenbaums are for <laughs> sure <laughs> a family I would otherwise tell to go fuck themselves. <laughs> Especially thinking about when this came out, like to think that like, it's a relatively new phenomenon. You know, you see on Twitter, someone I saw someone the other day be like, normalize telling your family that you need mental health uh, help or something along the, those lines. No one was saying that when I was 18 seeing this movie in the theater. Like, no one was like, let's all popularize talking about how we're fucked up. We were just beginning, like Prozac Nation had, had come out. But like, we were kind of just beginning having those nuanced conversations. And 20 years isn't that long ago. I think in the early 2000s, it was like, let's have Lifetime movies about depression and, and postpartum psychosis and imply that it like happens. You know, this is a social issue that happens in sensationalized circumstances to Valerie Bertinelli. So it was like, know about this thing, but it's very scary and remote. And it's not like we're going to make it easier for you to talk about it. It's going to get, you know, maybe more stigmatized in a way as like the initial wave of visibility happens. No, and it's so it's so interesting to think that like the people that we needed or the people that we were able to see that in would have needed the luxury of leisure time to go through these things. Because again, if you show me this family in their lower working class, well, I guess Roseanne did that for like 10 years, but if you show me this family and show them being lower middle class and going through all these issues and having the luxury of time to go through these issues, you'd be like, where's the time? Because I grew up that way with all these resentments and all these issues, and we didn't have time to <laughs> to come come home and have, a, have an elegant, beautiful uh, uh, homecoming with our parents. We just had to suffer through it. And to have an space for the family to all congregate under one roof but then to have their own separate areas where they can process their trauma in a whimsical fashion yes and have mediators like default mediators sarah who stood out to you character wise through this through this viewing you know i really found the character of richie relatable in a way that i don't remember before. I don't remember ever paying that much attention to him. Richie is played by Luke Wilson. He's the tennis star of the movie whose best friend is uncannily his brother in real life, which is like a nice, I love that they did that casting. And I feel like he's the sort of family mediator in a, in a way whose tragedy I didn't appreciate when I was younger because that was who I was and we always recognize ourselves last. Because he's the one who Royal takes to the dogfights. He's the one who's sort of, if there's a scene with several people, he's the one who's kind of trying to equalize the emotional room tone. I also didn't really put together until this time that he clearly is wearing his trademark tennis ace outfit all over town, even after having this traumatic disgrace and retirement from the sport he still wants people to know who he is or else he wouldn't wear a sweatband in the winter and the sweatband has his name on it bomb (laughs) that's very obvious but i didn't notice it before i'm just like oh richie how come (laughs) I, i didn't either also the thing that i noticed this time is that margot wears 
a little Lacoste tennis dress. Oh, wow. It's kind of like atonement. You're watching a character who found her look when she was 14 and was like, this is good. I'm done now. And you're like, that's sad. Like, there's other sad things about your life, but this, like, reflects that sad. Like, atonement is fundamentally about a woman who had the same haircut for 70 years. (laughs) Until you put your description of Richie the way that you did, I didn't realize how much his position... That you were Richie. (laughs) Not even that I'm Richie. So I have five siblings all from one previous marriage. So my dad had five kids after that family didn't quite work. He had me... With my mom, and I'm the only kid. And me and my dad have probably the closest relationship of all of his kids as a result. And boy, do some of my siblings not like that very much. Mm, Yeah. And I was also a second family child, which meant I got the shit end of the stick, but closer, I always felt. And I think my older half-brother's at least when they were younger. I mean, because my dad abandoned their family when they were preteens, which, like, that's the shit end of the stick, too. Like, because my dad just has a stick and both ends have shit on them. Same. Same. <laughs> you just hold it in the, in the dead middle <laughs> with your thumb and index finger. <laughs> Here, hold this stick. No, not that side. No, not that side either. <laughs> Sarah, I think there's so so I think the word for that is we're we're Richie Tenenbaums or we're Sean Lennons. Yeah, a, a real Sean Lennon situation. And Bing Crosby also, I think, famously did this. He had a first family who knew him when he was still drinking and I think was really quite I, I don't have allegations in front of me, so I don't want to slander Bing Crosby in an inaccurate way. But like he did some bad stuff. He was a scary dad. He was allegedly a scary ass dad and then he had a second family where I think he wasn't drinking anymore and you know this is a thing that happens and also like this definitely happens with serial killers and therefore we should consider it as a phenomenon with other men when your testosterone drops off (laughs) you get less violent this happens with dads as well. Mm. Well, it happened with David Bowie too, right? Was he a bad dad for a while and then a good dad? Well, or he at least very absent. Mm. He had had a son from a first marriage or relationship and then at the end of his life had had a daughter and was just totally dad, dadded out. But I don't know I don't know enough about that only that his relationship I think with his son was strained because I mean that was probably when he was completely coked out and Yeah. And also like touring and having like his like career years and then when you're older you can Yeah, I think there's I'm sure there's also a thing where men age out of pursuing their careers with the single-mindedness that can just you know render them absent parents most of the time. I mean, and this happens for for everyone, but dads, we've joked about it so many times on this show that I think, you know, not overtly, but often the joke is the dad will become absentee by investing himself in the career, whether or not it is it is required of the career. But a thing does happen where eventually your eventually the the groundwork for your career has been built. And so you're just kind of just driving that moving forward. And it doesn't require 
every ounce of your energy all the time, only the very most of it. And so I think like once some people get beyond that, they're able to be present. It doesn't excuse it. Um, but in this case, Royal uh, hits that point at 67 years old. <laughs> And he hits it because he's uh, run out of money and he's getting kicked out of his, his housing. I don't know how he had money for as long as he did, because he's been disbarred for 15 years, if we're to assume that this movie takes place in a real timeline <laughs> that the rest of the country is in. <laughs> that is a good question. Well, I've been walking. I don't do too much talking. Explain what the Royal Tenenbaums is. The Royal Tenenbaums is the breakthrough success by Wes Anderson, who had previously made Bottle Rocket and Rushmore. And it is about a man named Royal Tenenbaum, who's played by Gene Hackman, who has been estranged from his family for the past three years after being a son of a bitch. And he has three children, Margot, Chaz, and Richie, played by Gwyneth Paltrow, Ben Stiller and Luke Wilson, who grew up as prodigies and who are now <laughs> damaged, sad adults. Royal runs out of money and then comes home to his family and announces that he wants to live in the family home and reconcile with his children because he's dying of cancer. And so he announces to his family that he's dying of cancer and that he wants to repair his relationships with his children and also with his wife, Ethelene, played by Angelica Houston, from whom he separated 20 years ago, who he now wants to win back because she's going to marry Danny Glover. It's Gene Hackman versus Danny Glover. Who, and most of the characters in this movie have written books, and Henry Sherman wrote my favorite book in this movie, which is called Accounting for Everything. <laughs> The way that you framed the movie earlier, it made me look at Chaz in a way that I haven't looked at him before and like maybe even had a little more empathy for my siblings than I normally have. I understand why they're frustrated with the situation I described. I don't love the hostility they throw my way for something I, I didn't create the dynamic of. But I think in seeing Chaz and why things are so hard for Chaz. And I, I don't think Ben Stiller gets enough credit for playing this role so beautifully. No, yeah. I think we just assume he's naturally an asshole who is really tragic and annoying. But I think he's, I mean, maybe that's true, but he's very good at playing that complexly, I think. He hurts. He wasn't the heir to the throne. Yeah. He wasn't the favored son. That's got to be really really stridently painful. Don't you love how all our stories are just like family stories and love stories and those are the two stories. It's just like mythology, family, Christianity, family, religion, family, superheroes, family. You know, it's just like, and most of it is dads. I mean, I guess that's why we decided to 
to do this as like a show or whatever. Well, and this one marries the both. It's romance and family. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we got to talk about that. I think family is the first place where we deeply learn about injustice, right? Like there's so much injustice in a family because this thing of the older sibling or the child of the first marriage or whatever child who feels that the parent favors another child, you know, will will resent the child who's being favored instead of the parent. And it's like, of course that happens because if someone's dead, you can't actively resent them as satisfyingly or something like that. Or because, you know, you'd want to be able to love the parents still. And so all the aggression that they've earned, you put onto somebody else, you know, all these reasons that injustice flourishes in family systems. You know, I think this is this is the first place that we can like really see this as a force in the world and a sort of like the lack of logic in our relationships to each other and in wounded relationships. I was just going to ask Rachel about this specifically, and you just framed it wonderfully. We're treated to this flashback in which, first of all, the flashback is hilarious because the presumption is that they all, under the guidance of their father, are having a war with each other with BB guns, which are like... At the beach house that Chaz negotiated the purchase of when he was in middle school. (laughs) Yes, the American Ur BB gun movie is A Christmas Story, which is a bunch of people telling their kid to not play with a firearm. And in this movie, the dad is like, let's just all play and fight each other. There are, are supposedly teams and Chaz and Royal are on the same team. And Royal, in, in probably the most characteristic younger Royal fashion or flavor, he <laughs> turns the gun and he shoots Chaz. And, and Chaz says, we're on the same team. And Royal says, there are no teams. Which, again, talking about like a crash course in unfairness within your family. There are no teams in this family. In this family. Like, we're in the same family and you're not on my team, Chaz. <laughs> Rachel, what's the BB gun What's the BB gun injustice all about? (laughs) I don't really think that Royal does what he does. I I don't think that the BB gun injustice or really any of of Royal's other crimes are, are really they're not malicious. So it's not about malice. I think it it in a lot of ways it it's about two con- conflicting schemas of the world. And one of the things that's really interesting about this film and, and about the family, and I was talking to my husband, Paul, about this because Paul actually wrote about Wes Anderson in his, uh, in his dissertation. Uh, so there's a lot of, a lot of Wes Anderson uh, chit-chat in, in, our, in our household, or there certainly was while he was finishing his doctorate. He made a great observation. We were talking about how so often in a Wes Anderson film, everybody sort of fits. Everybody, you understand why everybody's in the, that world. In the Royal Tenenbaums, Royal doesn't, he doesn't fit. Everybody else fits. But Royal is the sort of feral force. And so I, I think, to me, some of what the BB gun incident expresses is you have these two two masculine forces. You have, you have Chaz, who wants their to be order. From a young age, he obviously uses numbers, math, finance as uh, as a way to, to self-soothe, as a way to satiate his, his neuroses. So 
so he he plays by the rules. He understands rules. He he and he clings to rules, which is which is why he he's also clings to to safety practices and in part why losing his wife was so traumatic of course because he lost his wife but also because there was because I think it was it was a freak accident right there was no there was no real logic to it he he's buttressed by logic the logic of team the logic of family he has a very clear sense of what that means and what you do within uh in order to, uh, in order to uphold that logic, whereas royal, fuck logic, <laughs> royal, royal is royal in a lot of ways is just sort of pure it. He he does, uh, he does whatever he's inclined to do. They're playing a game. He's he's a playful person. So for royal, a game means a free for all. And he's probably like, boyhood is about getting shot by your father sometimes a little bit. Yeah. Like, probably his childhood was something like that. Because once again, this is a kid who was born in the early 30s. And so, yeah, if there is a logic for Royal, that's what it is. The logic is understand that they're all that nothing is fair, understand that there'll be betrayal, understand that people, that you can't even trust the people that you think are, you can't trust the people who are closest to you. And that your dad will come at you and shoot you because he loves you and because he's showing you the world isn't fair. And like, that's paternal love, according to, you know, to many dads who have trod this earth and offered to split up the flowers they just put on their mother's grave so that you can have some for your wife's. When I was in middle school, I wrote all of these just really, really terrible short stories. And I showed one to my father. I have no recollection of what it was about. And he read it and said, you know, this this really isn't my thing. He he wasn't going to give me approval. He wasn't going to tell me it was good or anything because it wasn't it wasn't for him. And I got really really upset because I had showed it to him because I wanted him to tell me that it was great and and I wanted to I wanted to be told I was such a good writer and you know all Cuz you're coming as a child and not as a as an artist, right? Cuz a child glues macaroni to paper and is like, "Do you like this macaroni that I I glued on this paper for you?" And it's the parents' job to be like, "I do. I love this macaroni." I'm still making macaroni, man. This was my narrative macaroni. Yeah. <laughs> so I got really upset and I tore up the story and I threw it in the trash, made sure he could see that I did this. And then I stomped back and I said, you know what? I don't care. And I pulled it out of the trash, at which point he said, good, you shouldn't care. And it was very confusing because I it wasn't it wasn't supposed to matter what he thought and yet our family was so entirely oriented around what he thought I desperately wanted my father to think it was good were you telling me that he gave you quizzes also homework extra homework homework right yeah right so like this very involved like cerebrally involved parenting yeah and it was really kind of adorable he when I was young he he worked a lot he's a physician and um and so he would he would often be on call and uh when I was young he he worked weekends and so sometimes I would come downstairs in the morning 
you know, be ready to to go play. And there would be hanging by the calendar and the phone a little white sheet of paper where he would have, before he left for work, made me an assignment to complete. I wasn't really pleased to see it because, you know, I didn't want extra homework. But this was also, this was affection. This was... This was for my dad a way of of expressing love, creating a, a series of of assignments that were tailor fit to to me in the way that he wanted to teach me. It's a lot of work for you, but it's also a lot of work for him, which like, yeah, I interpret now as like that probably would have annoyed me immensely at that age, but it also would have been really interesting to me and like exciting that my dad had like gone to the effort to do that. Cause like my dad used to just like, he, he made terrible sandwiches. I think sandwiches are like an area where you can see dads, you know, trying or not trying in some interesting ways. And like dads, when they have to make a school lunch, either like a, they do it and they know what they're doing. B they haven't done it before. And they're like, okay, I am a human being and I can methodically figure out how to do all sorts of things. So I will figure out how to make a sandwich for a human child. And then there's another class of dad that's like this whole process. The fact that I have to do this is somehow so upsetting to me that I will just blindly open this refrigerator and like grab some bread and some ingredients and like put them in some kind of a configuration and then just move forward basically, because this is not deserving of, of my time in any way. Like, it, I, I guess, like, yeah, I had some bad sandwiches. So, like, it's, yeah, I feel like even just at a significant remove, like, that feels complicated. Like, there's a lot happening in that. I hadn't thought of the framing that you had put together, Sarah, where it's like, you want these particular reactions from your dad, or you want these particular reactions from your parents, but your parents are also the weird people that they are. And so they're, so there's this oscillation between like, them just being the people who they are in proximity to you, and then them performing their role as a parent. In Royal, I, it's ne- I don't think it's ever struck Royal to to perform as a parent, right? Like Royal is just a man. And I've described this, my relationship with my dad before and and this show is like the, the realization I had when I was 12, when I realized I was just a, a, a child who lived with a man, you know, and like, that's Royal, right? It's like Royal is just Royal. He's very much a character from this time and place. I don't, I don't even know like what kind of character that is. Like mid century imaginary New York is where he's from. Yes, he's unabashedly himself and his kids need a dad sometimes and he's not able to get out of the way of being royal to be their dad. And this is a movie about him trying to figure out how to sync those two responsibilities. Like, how do you merge yourself with with what your kids need and and to not do it in a way where I mean, Rachel, the way you described is, is what your dad did as a form of affection resonates with ways that my dad and his like super, you know, New England working class, like wanted wanted me to go out and like help him with his tractor like that for him was affection. And I realized that. But like like Royal, it wasn't realizing the things that it was him giving me the things that he imagined he needed at the time, not seeing in me maybe the stuff that I needed. And I feel like like most of your life in one way or another, 
in untangling your relationship with your parents, in particular with your dad and this conversation, is trying to figure out how to merge those things. And if you can't merge those things, how to like rationalize to yourself that you're never going to get them. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. I was watching some classic Simpsons last night and it reminded me of the core tenet of Buddhism that to desire is to suffer, which I feel like is just, it is no clearer to me than in these relationships and in relationships with parents and relationships with people, relationships with people generally, because like anytime you're in a relationship with someone and what you want is for them to do something or to behave in a way that would require them being different than who they are fundamentally. It's like, you're just making yourself unhappy and you can talk about like, you know, and then you talk about what you need someone to know about you in order to understand what you need them to do and, communicating your needs to each other and figuring out what they are. But then like, if you need someone to have a greater capacity to do that than they have, then you can't change that either. And you have to either decide that you're getting enough out of the relationship and it's not wounding you (laughs) in in an irreparable way and, and proceed or be like, Oh, I'm being wounded. I'm, losing emotional blood at an alarming rate. I have to go. But if you're family, it's like sometimes literally impossible to do that. <laughs> so yeah, I was watching The Simpsons last night. It was my favorite piece of uh, uh, punctuation. <laughs> <laughs> the, the core tenet of a major religion makes the most sense to me when I think about the longing I have felt for my dad specifically you know, in relationships, but most of all for my dad to have a greater capacity emotionally than he has. One of my favorite exercises, which which I encountered a couple of times in uh, like modern Buddhist text is this idea where you kind of form a relationship with your five-year-old self. And then you imagine that five-year-old self having a conversation with your dad as his five-year-old self before he became all the dad stuff. And then just try to facilitate a relationship between those two people. Wow. Wow. You know, because like in a lot of ways, it's like we're never going to get the the Richie and excuse me, the Royal and Chaz reconciliation at the end of the movie. There are like pathways in the brain that are always trying to make that work. And so... I have found that, like, especially with people that I have any sort of hostility with, particularly um, um, (laughs) unresolved hostility, particularly my dad, uh, having that exchange where it's like you you imagine yourself having as a young and sort of un, unmolested by your life having a conversation with your dad doing the same thing it 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 makes possible a lot of things that unfortunately reality does not no i love that and just like imagining that exercise gives me a sense of like pre-cry so i'm like okay just like save it for a day when you've hydrated more than this <laughs> You know who I was surprised to relate to way more in this movie than I do? And I don't relate to him personally. Raleigh St. Clair? No, Eli. (laughs) I love Eli. I'm totally Eli. I love that he's a himbo and that's great. And I love that all all the particular things around him that are obvious and quirky. But this is a boy who didn't have 
parents like or, or like active parents or it seems in all he was he said he always wanted to be a tenenbaum like he just wants this unit around him and i don't like i guess it's ambiguous as to whether or not he he wanted a family around him or did he want to be a genius because we know that he wanted to be a genius based on initial conversations that happened but this whole movie, everyone is kind of dismissing him because he's in the way in a messy way. He's in a way in the way that I was throughout my entire twenties. I very easily could have driven a car through a uh, through a, the lead up to a wedding uh, because because of all the baggage that Eli has. But yeah, I, Eli is such an interesting character that doesn't get enough attention. Understandably, if he got more attention, he'd be more annoying or whatever. But the guy who just wants to be a part of another family. I related to in a gigantic way. Mm-hmm. The fact that he sends he sends Ethelene all his clippings is is just is really devastating, and it makes sense because to be to be a Tenenbaum is to be a genius, as far as he's concerned. So for Eli, there's those two things are probably so inextricable. So there's maybe on some unperceived level, the the effort to become a genius is the effort to be a Tenenbaum or to be, or to maybe to be worthy of, of being a Tenenbaum. Well, and something I noticed preparing for this episode that I hadn't noticed really any of the times I'd watched this before, didn't remember, is the opening narration which we must mention is done by Alec Baldwin, which I guess love. And it's such a random choice. I mean, I, I'm, you know, it's great, but it's like, but why? Like, he, okay, yeah, sure, why not? It's great. He was just like the Hunch for Red October guy and the Sweaty Balls guy. Like, it, by 2001, that was who Alec Baldwin was. <laughs> right. Alec Baldwin 20 years ago had, like, just begun a Dante-like journey that he has recently <laughs> completed. And now he's like... You know, Alec Baldwin today is like a, a happy 60-year-old who chases all his kids around. But 20 years ago, it was a different world. And as likable a dad is royal in his worst days. Margot grew up before a voicemail, so I think it would be interesting to see what more movies were like if they just started with Alec Baldwin does the exposition for five minutes and gets it, he does the work for you. But we are told by Alec Baldwin that Eli Cash's success is sudden and unexpected that he as we meet him in this movie has come out with a book about Custer and is you know doing this beautiful sort of western LARPing which I feel like has something to do with you know just there's been a lot of western literary bad boys over the years and just literary celebrities uh he's almost like a Norman Mailer Jack Kerouac kind of a figure just like driving dangerously around New York and taking mescaline as like a daily thing. Yeah, doing drugs with Egyptians. You got to do that. And and I love that he has, you know, we're, we're meeting him when he has reached this incredible success that no one could predict reaching in their life. And this family still is dismissive of him. Right. I remember seeing this in the theater in the second 
I recognize Alec Baldwin's voice and just seeing how this was unfolding. I just remember just sitting in glee. The thing that I noticed in the intro this go in his book tour, one of the reviews notes that he is not a genius and he's having a conversation with Margot on the phone saying, <laughs> um, you know, asking if she thinks that he's a genius and we don't see her answer, but she, she immediately answers no. And he says, he says, Oh, you answered that quickly. It happens juxtaposed against the fact that we learn that Ethelene has written a book called A Family of Geniuses describing the Tenenbaums. So the person who you want more than anyone to confirm that you are a genius of the, the Tenenbaums that you're fucking, which which that is his relationship with Margot at this point. And he doesn't even get that. Like, this is his poor, <laughs> poor neglected <laughs> asshole. Oh, I love him so much. He's like a well-meaning St. Bernard that got off his leash. So do we want to talk? about the fact that Richie and Margot end up together? Um, yeah, I was watching this and I was like, huh. So when I watched this when I was 13, I was just like, yeah, that okay, they're in love. Whatever. I'm 13. I, I Sure, feelings. And watching it now, I'm like, uh... I don't know. But we should start by just setting up by saying that if you if you somehow have not seen this movie, there are three children. Margot is adopted. That's sort of a major identifier of her relationship with Royal. And when she goes back to meet her birth family, her birth dad cuts her finger off accidentally. And maybe she wouldn't have felt the need if Royal didn't always uh, use that modifier when he introduced her. Right. This is my adopted daughter, Margot. And he, to your point earlier, Rachel, about the dad acceptance, Margot early on, she's a, she's a very talented playwright. She puts on a play at her, I think her 11th or 12th birthday and a very clearly wants some acknowledgement from Royal and Royal says that he can't identify with it because it's just a bunch of kids fooling around. Oh, it's just so bad. So Margot is a person who is adopted, who does not have a close relationship with their father because of her father's fucking weird approach to acknowledgement. That results in her losing a finger, which is probably more than symbolic. And now... As adults, Richie has realized that he is in love with Margot. Yes, they're in love. And like, am I troubled by the fact that they're siblings and they grew up as siblings? And I'm like, I feel like that should feel disturbing to me. But like, I don't know. It's a movie. It's fictional. Like, it's their business. They're adults. I don't care. Like... <laughs> The main problem with incest or what we have in the past called incest, if you're not related biologically, is the power differential, you know, and the idea that a lot of this takes place, you know, if not between different generations, then with children of different ages and like stuff that got called incest in previous decades would be called abuse today because it's between, you know, siblings with an age and power differential. With this, I'm like, well, they're the same age. I'm of two, of two minds. I don't love it. One of the things that I was thinking about this time was the extent to which Margot felt like a sister. And I think that that comes back to the sort of insisting upon her being adopted. Yeah, she's like Heathcliff, isn't she? Yeah, if she's never been fully treated like a daughter, then I wonder whether Chaz and Richie ever fully felt as if 
she was a sister if that if that was the sort of bond that they cultivated with her and is it like she's a tenenbaum because she's a genius but not because she like feels like he's a sister figure and and we know clearly that richie has been in love with Margot. he's drawn a gazillion pictures of her we have that quick scene ethylene is is hanging his latest on the wall and we have one of my favorite lines of alec baldwin narration which is he had failed to develop as an artist <laughs> yes every painting is basically the same and they're all of Margot. on the one hand it feels as if she's probably always been an object of desire and that there's always been the space at the same time, the world of the Tenenbaums is wildly incestuous. I mean, they all come back to the same house. They're attached to each other and not really to the rest of the world. I think they exist the most to each other. Margot is never going to be that interested in an attachment with her Oliver Sacks-esque Husband. Yeah, this is the first time I noticed he was Oliver Sacks-esque, and also because the obvious tends to escape me the first time I noticed she just married, like, a dickless carbon copy of her dad. <laughs> Played by Bill Murray in his, one of his few dickless roles. Mordecai's return in this movie hit me in the, in the biggest way this viewing. So Richie has a falcon. At some point in his youth, we know that he let it go because he, le- he came to feel that birds don't belong in cages. Mordecai returns towards the end of the movie when Richie and Royal are on the um, roof and Richie is explaining this conundrum he has with Margot. And I was like, oh, okay, I get it. I get it. Finally, I finally get the whole fucking thing. This is about the circumstances that occur and create a reorientation in a household, right? So like Royal comes back, he's molted, um, uh, excuse me, Mordecai, Mordecai's come back, he's molted, his feathers are... No, I think that was a good slip, Alex. <laughs> in the before scenes we see of Royal, his hair is black, and he's come back and his hair is white. Person has kind of come back to the family. It's like this process of dislodging all of the bullshit that's been happening over the past three years and over the past, like, 30 years in one way or another. Wow. You know, when he gives the divorce papers to Ethelene so that they can get married, so that that, uh, her and Henry can get married. It's such a joyful scene because I think like he is recognizing growth, obviously, but in that growth, he's liberating the family so they can all be the people that they're ultimately supposed to be. And and it's beautiful. And so you see the joy that she feels because she's finally uh, like let go of, of her suspended animation where she can be in love with the person who she's in love with. She can let herself be that I don't know morally how to feel about Richie and Margot. I don't know where to, to stand on it. But the, the the thing that's most important is I feel like they're finally able to see each other as they actually are at that place. Chaz is able to finally let go and now take joy rides on the back of trash trucks, which we all want. Apparently, we all want to be free and sort of hanging out of the back of trash trucks. It's this major reorientation that happens. And, and you know, Mordecai symbolizes that. I feel like that they're they're falling in love symbolizes that Eli is finally able to see that he has a drug problem all because Royal realized that he he should not be selfish it's a wonderful life as soon as the dad starts like bringing it to the table emotionally it liberates your daughter from marrying a shitty version of you an even more neutered version of you right think of what you want about her ending up with Richie how many people end up with some ineffectual fucking version of their father because their father couldn't tell them that they loved their play (laughs) yeah 
as a progression of tragic attachments going from like <laughs> marrying a dad proxy to just like acknowledging that you're in love with your brother, it's like, look, it's progress. <laughs> <laughs> it is interesting to bring up that point about Margot and losing her finger and sort of the quest for finding her where she's from or at least people who maybe give a shit more than Royal does when she's younger because we we hear from people who are adopted a lot who talk about how it's like you think you have a complicated relationship with your dad I don't know who my parents are and that's a forever question Margot's pursuit in particular is really interesting even though it's pretty understated as a result of her being an object a little bit, her journey is is overlooked. And I think it's just, you know, these are all people who are looking for their relationship with a parent, specifically with a dad, and about the process that is required to get out of the way of letting that happen. I love the montage when her husband, I'm just going to call him Bill Murray, when Bill Murray and, and Richie are looking at the investigator's file, which, I mean, it's so good, and it's set to the remote. Oh, it's the best. The music moments in this movie are extremely good, and I think were mind-blowingly good in the context of 2001 and kind of standardized what we expect. We take for granted now the kind of media that this inspired for the past 20 years. Do you guys agree with that? Disclaimer, my husband, his dissertation was on film music and film sound. He wrote about sound in Wes Anderson, and, and something that he, he writes about is the really important work that the music in this film does. So if we're talking about Margot specifically, the Charlie Brown Christmas time, we hear it first when she's coming back home. The affect feels not dissimilar to sadly coming home from college for like a break. Yeah, like your first Thanksgiving break home when you're like, oh, my God, it's it's there's a lot of sandworms out there. Yeah, you're running back to the nest where, you know, that is the site of all of your trauma, but you'd rather be there. And then the second time that we hear the music is when she's having that conversation in the ice cream parlor with Royal the context in which Paul writes about it is that the music opens up a space for empathy. When Margot accuses Royal of not even knowing her middle name, he says, well, it's a trick question because you don't have one. And she says, it's Helen. And then he says, surprise, oh, that's my mother's name. And then she says, I know. I know why I'm named that. <laughs> Probably because it's extremely important to her that she's named after his his mother because she's wanted to belong to him and she's wanted him to feel as if she belongs to him but as he said would say was you know she wasn't your real grandmother that's bullshit what are your uh, your closing royal tenenbaum thoughts rachel one of the criticisms that i think that this film receives and that i think a lot of anderson wes anderson's films receive that they're a little too precious I think was was how I felt at first I I was missing something I I realized I wasn't paying attention I I probably needed to start interrogating the relationships that I had with my parents and my younger sisters uh, rather than just sort of moving through them I'm now struck every time I watch this movie with how deeply tender and embodied it is. I think I've, I've come to a point where I, I, I really relish it. I, I love the insistence upon 
earnestness and undiluted feeling. And on the one hand, I can see why the aesthetic might be alienating or it might be distracting. I don't think the first his first two films really had this where you you have every character sort of at the center staring you down. And yeah, it's like The Silence of the Lambs. That is not a movie I've seen, <laughs> but I believe you. Consistently... The characters who Clarice is talking to will be framed in a close-up of their face, and they're looking directly at the camera. And when we see Clarice responding to them, she's looking away from the camera. So you are being looked at by the people that are looking at Clarice and who are staring at her and assessing her and evaluating her the entire time. So this is, you know, not, I think, attempting to be that unnerving. But yeah, I was watching just the opening credits of this, which introduce all the characters by showing them I think they're all looking in the mirror and assessing the appearance that they're bringing into the world. And then we conclude that with Richie doing this and then lifting up a camera to see how he looks. And I was like, oh, yeah, this movie is like kind of an important moment in the history of the selfie, um, which has been around for as long as cameras have. But, you know, and the, the, the colors and the aesthetics of this movie feel very connected to you know, it's a very broad platform, but I feel like there there are strong aesthetics within Instagram, and I can see the influence of this movie in that platform. Seeing this, I now kind of feel like if you're going to tell a story that is effectively about your family or your family dynamics or where you, you have come from and who your people are or whatever, how could you not be this mired in the deep in the de detail and minutiae makes me think that like that hereditary is basically just a horror movie about if wes anderson went another direction hereditary is like a, it's basically like a movie about a woman who's obsessed with these miniatures that makes her better understand her relationship to herself and her family and all these things happen and these family horrors happen which is like where the, it gets its title or whatever and wes anderson's the same fucking person like he's creating these miniatures of his family that he presents on screen he presents them in what is effectively a dollhouse in all these doll clothes etc it but fortunately for him he's able to actually have emotional breakthroughs i think i assume as a result or at the very least tell some truth that resonates with a lot of different people and he's fortunate because if you're trying to tell your story i feel like you would need to include all that stuff in one way or another and by including all that stuff you create all these circumstances for failure and this lucky asshole didn't fail well and i feel like what turned me off about his work eventually was that it felt like the aesthetic became more important than the storytelling and that was where i kind of was like all right we're gonna go our separate ways me and you wes anderson but this doesn't feel that way to me at all. I feel as if it's it's doing that thing of, of the aesthetic supporting the storytelling because we're seeing how the characters see and construct their world. I'm a big fan of movies being pleasing to consume. I think that it is a crutch of the insecure to think that something has to be miserable to be good. Like there's a lot of art I love that's miserable to consume, but like Goodfellas is a pretty universally beloved movie, and it is a fun movie to watch. It is very aesthetically focused. Martin Scorsese loves art direction just as much as Wes Anderson does, if not more and more deeply. But he wants to construct 1960s gangster Philadelphia instead of a candy-colored dollhouse full of boy feelings. We get really caught up in, the, in this idea of naturalism, as if any time somebody 
films a movie as if that isn't artificial and constructed. Whether we have the borders and the diorama and the the really intentional color palette, or whether we have 1960s Philly, it's still a movie set. It's still it's still a narrative. And it's such a small, almost impossible to articulate articulate barrier that stands between nailing aesthetic to the point where you can feel the feelings the hardest and alienating your audience entirely. How many Scorsese movies is he utilizing the same mechanisms that give you the same feels that you had in like in whatever, like Mean Streets or eventually Goodfellas, where he's using all that and it's getting you no closer to the feeling that's in the middle of the movie. And I think that like if you make enough movies at some point, like if you write enough pieces, you're going to have some points where you're magic brings people in closer and you're going to have some points where your magic repels people. Well, I'll keep on moving Things are bound to be improving these days These days These days I'll sit on cornerstones And count the times and quarter tunes to There were many dads in this movie, many, many dads, uh, Royal being the primary and then others being secondary. Who was the daddy? I've given this a great deal of thought because as as an enthusiastic fan of the podcast, I, I love this question. And I think I'm going to have to go with Ethelene. I must confess that there is a photo that I'm sure Sarah has seen me tweet multiple times of a young Angelica Houston dressed in a white tank and suspenders and breeches slouched in a chair and it is it's like my sexuality just embodied I mean it just soft butch daddy it's it's so hot (laughs) I would say that Ethelene was the daddy regardless because I think she's got that energy there is a vulnerability there, but also but also a confidence and a, and, a, and a poise. I feel like I also do have to be frank about the texture of my answer. It is informed by this. She could say standalone be the case, but you have some history with her uh, embodying your sexuality. Sarah? I really must agree because she's the one who is quietly parenting for this whole movie. And I do think that you know, writing a whole book about how your children are geniuses (laughs) is like a questionable choice. But perhaps she knows that now. I want to believe that because she can evolve, she changes clothes over the course of the movie. So, you know, she evolves. She also may have needed to do that to make up money. That's a really good point. That's true, too. The upkeep on this palace in you know, on West 319th Street. It can't be cheap. And she hosts bridge nights. Also, something Ethelene does that I love, and this is, to me, a great example of storytelling through set decoration, is we see when, when the kids are still young that she has framed 
their drawings and that they're lining the walls of the house and not just the ones that Richie does of Margot, but in the scene where they pan over to her in the phone booth that they have, we can see, you know, just these beautiful like gilt edged frames with children's drawings. I was like, oh, that's so nice that she did that when they were kids. And then the movie kept going and came back to the house 20 years later and they're still there. <laughs> yeah, I love that so much. I also love her little phone booth. I love that everybody in the house has a little womb, and that's hers. They do. Oh, my. That's it. I credit this movie with giving me the dream I've had since I was 13, which is to someday have a turret, which I guess I'm sitting in right now because I just set up an office in a little, like, corner of my house that has, like, maximum window space, but it's also sort of narrow and enclosed, so... I made it. New England's like one in three turrets. Like if you want to, if you want a place where it's just straight up turrets, like New England is, is it. Who's your daddy, Alex? I'm not going to say Alec Baldwin because we know in real life, Alec Baldwin has had some rocky times being a dad. I will say though, the narrator that opens the first five minutes of this movie, explaining to me in clear language, what is about to happen and who these people are and doing so in his warm buttery voice your first character is a dad reading you a story ah, wow and also that this movie frames itself as a book which is so lovely yeah which just gives you the princess bride feelings it's the princess bride if alec baldwin were reading it to you right amen All right, everybody, that is it for this episode of Why Our Dads. Thank you so much to Rachel for being on the show. It was a delight, and she really wanted to do this movie, and I'm glad we did this movie. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick, of course, for making all of these episodes sound good from start to finish, uh, from music to edit to production. Just She does it all, and we are so grateful. Just want to remind you of a couple of things. One, um, we have this limited run t-shirt that is available just for a week. Once you hear this episode, it's available for a week. Well, I guess it depends on when you're listening, but it is available until November 18th. You can find it at links on our social, which is uh, we're on Twitter and on Instagram. Um, and uh, ideally, there'll be a link on the website by the time this goes up. Um, you order and then they will ship uh, right after the 18th. And uh, ideally, you'll have them by the first week of December. What am I missing? What else should I tell you? Oh, we, uh, what are we going to watch next week? I know that this is a moving target and I know that that might be frustrating <laughs> for you because you try to watch one movie and then we end up doing another. We're kind of playing it by ear um, and trying to offer stuff that will be fun and interesting to listen to in strange times. Uh, so we had our great friend Louisa Smith on a couple weeks ago and we talked about the movie Big Fish. And I don't know if you've seen this movie, but it is... <laughs> It's big on dads. It's it's a strangely bright, uh, brightly, I should say, brightly palleted uh, Tim Burton film. It is fun and it's emotional and it is, uh, we had a great time talking about it and I cried a lot watching it, just like I cried a lot watching it the first time. Um, but it's, it's, you know, I don't know. I don't know how one would describe it. It's a romp. <laughs> It's a romp with tears. Watch that. I'm I'm relatively certain that that is what we're going to cover next week again with our great friend Louisa Smith. All right, 
that's it for this episode of why are dads we are grateful for you thank you so much i hope that you are taking care of yourselves out there we appreciate you